Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for members or Patreon members of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this series, we are covering the Sirah or the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And we are currently on Sirah episode number 42. In this episode, we will try to finish finish the ninth year of the Hijrah. And because I'm trying to finish off this year, it might be a little bit longer as we have a lot of things to cover. Brief recap from last week, we discussed the story of Adi ibn Hatim. He was a Christian Arab who had initially opposed the Prophet, but he fled to Syria when Ali ibn Abi Talib brought an army that invaded Adi ibn Hatim's village. Adi ibn Hatim's sister was captured and taken back to Medina. The Prophet, however, allowed her to return to to Adi and convince him to accept Islam. Adi ibn Hatim eventually did so, and he became a staunch supporter of the Prophet. And so, let's go on into this episode. We have quite a few things to cover. Starting with the delegations, we have discussed delegations in an earlier episode, but there are still a few more interesting delegation stories that we haven't quite spoken of yet. And so because these are somewhat out of chronological order, not all of these necessarily happened before the Battle of Tabuk chronologically. But I just wanted to bring them in just so we uh, they're at least mentioned and some of them are rather important. First, we'll have the delegation of Banu Tamim. Banu Tamim was a large tribe that occupied parts of Western Arabia. They had not yet converted to Islam. It was it Eastern Arabia? I think it's Eastern Arabia that they covered, that they had uh, occupied. But Banu Tamim had not yet converted to Islam. They, however, did attack Banu Khuza'a, which was allied with the Muslims and had accepted Islam. Banu Tamim attacked Banu Khuza'a in order to prevent uh, Banu Khuza'a from paying the zakat to the uh, prophet and to the uh, Medina. Now, this attack against Banu Khuza'a by Banu Tamim was probably more of a political thing rather than a religious thing, even though Banu Tamim had not yet accepted Islam. It is most likely an attempt by them to either weaken Medina or weaken the Muslim stronghold, or perhaps they wanted to take the wealth for themselves. Just in reading it, I just don't get the impression that this was some sort of we hate Islam kind of thing by Banu Tamim. Anyway, Banu Khuza'a, despite being attacked by Banu Tamim, they were actually able to defend themselves and they were able to fight off Banu Tamim. However, the Prophet's zakat collector, whom he had sent to Banu Khuza'a to collect the zakat, he had fled back to Medina during the fighting between Khuza'a and Tamim. When the Prophet heard that his allies, Banu Khuza'a, had been attacked, he sent a cavalry of 50 horsemen, 50 horse warriors, to fight against Banu Tamim and punish them. After all, by attacking a an ally of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, by attacking a, a province or, so to speak, a, a portion of the Muslim empire, 
Banu Tamim had actually engaged in an act of war against the Muslims. So not only were Banu Tamim beaten off and defeated by Banu Khuza'a, they now had to face the full wrath of the Muslims, of the entire Muslim empire, which at this point in time covered much of the Arabian Peninsula. So the Muslim cavalry, even though it was only 50 soldiers or 50 horse warriors, they attacked and raided Banu Tamim and captured several people, and those captives were taken back to Medina. Banu Tamim, they were definitely in a position of weakness now. They had been defeated by first the Banu Khuza'a, and then by the official army sent from Medina. And Banu Tamim, they were pretty much ready to capitulate. So they sent a delegation of 80 men to negotiate the release of their captured family members and clans members. Maybe, maybe clans members is not a good phrase, but tribe members, so to speak. This was essentially a capitulation by Banu Tamim, sending this, this uh, delegation to Medina. This was Banu Tamim capitulating and submitting to the Muslim authority. They were just trying to work out the details now by going to Medina and speaking to the Prophet directly. So as the delegation of Banu Tamim was going through the streets of Medina to meet the Prophet at the Masjid, as they were going through the prisoners, those captives, they saw their family members and their men, basically. This delegation consisted of men from Banu Tamim. So when the captives of Banu Tamim, who were mostly men, older men, women and children, when they saw their young men within this delegation going through the streets of Medina to meet the, the prophet at the masjid, they began to cry and plead for them to help them out. So this made the members of the Tamimi delegation anxious and even more in a hurry to meet the Prophet. So they hurried through the streets of Medina to the Prophet's masjid and began calling out for Prophet Muhammad Of course, they weren't saying Prophet Muhammad. They were started saying, Muhammad, Muhammad, come out and speak with us. They were yelling at him and calling for him to come out. The Prophet was actually inside his house. Now, his house was attached to the masjid at that time. So he would go through a door that separated, or like a curtain, so to speak, that separated his actual household, which he shared with his wife Aisha, and the actual masjid itself where the Muslims prayed. And so this delegation from Banu Tamim, they started calling for him because he was in the inner apartments, inner compartments of his home deeper inside the masjid, which was not open to the public. But they began to call out to him to come out and meet with them because, of course, they were anxious because they had just passed through all their captive or passed by all their captive family members. Nonetheless, this was uh, a little annoying to the prophet to have this group suddenly show up and start calling for him because this was known to the Muslims not to do that. They had more respect for the prophet. They would not just yell at him and yell for him to come out and talk with them um, while he was inside his home. They would find other ways that they needed to get his attention. But this annoyed the prophet, but nonetheless, he still came out to see them. As the prophet came out to see them, he started speaking with the delegates of Banu Tamim, some of the other companions came in to see what all, what was going on and to also advise the prophet. This was common practice when the prophet would meet with the, with the delegation. Others of the high-ranking sahabas, they would come along and and uh, sit with him and meet with him and give him advice. And he would, he would take their advice and they would discuss the whole matter. 
In this instance, Abu Bakr and Omar, they began to discuss who should be the new governor of Banu Tamim. Because essentially, like we said, this was a capitulation. The delegation was coming there. They were just there to go over the particulars of how they can get their family members released. But there was no doubt about it. Banu Tamim was submitting to the rule of Islam. Abu Bakr, he suggested a companion named Al-Akra ibn Habis. Al-Akra, he was actually a member of uh, Banu Tamim. He had already accepted Islam, however, and he had already moved closer to Medina. And he had even been part of the, um, he had been Muslim even before the conquest of Mecca. However, most of his family members had not yet accepted Islam. Most of his tribe had not yet accepted Islam, but many of them had. Those who had had separated from their family and were now part of the uh, Muslim nation, so to speak. And while you may not be familiar with Al-Akra ibn Habis right away, you are probably familiar with certain hadith that are connected to him. There is a famous hadith where he commented on seeing the prophet kissing his grandson, Hassan, Hassan ibn Ali who was also the son of Fatima, who was the son of Prophet Muhammad. I'm sorry, who was the daughter of Prophet Muhammad. So Hassan was the Prophet's grandson. But Hassan at this time would have only been a little boy, maybe only about somewhere between two to four years old. And when um, Al-Akra ibn Habis, when he saw the Prophet kissing his grandson, Al-Akra said, I have 10 children and I have never kissed any of them. In which case, the Prophet responded, Man la yurham, la yurham. Whoever has no mercy will not receive mercy. So Al-Akra ibn Habis was the companion involved in that hadith. And it's a fairly famous hadith. I'm hoping that you've heard of it. If not, it's, it's out there. You can, you'll run across it eventually. So Abu Bakr, he suggested this person, Al-Akra ibn Habis. Omar, however, disagreed. He suggested a companion named Oyena ibn Hassan. Oyena ibn Hassan, he was the one who led the cavalry that had captured uh, all these captives from Banu Tamim. So Abu Bakr suggested Al-Akra ibn Habis because he was a respected companion and he was actually from Banu Tamim. Omar, however, suggested Oyena ibn Hassan because he had led the cavalry that had uh, captured so many people that had brought Banu Tamim in for this uh, negotiation in the first place. And so these two started arguing about it, but not necessarily necessarily arguing about who should be the leader. Abu Bakr said that Omar had only suggested Oyena, Oyena only to contradict him. And Omar denied this accusation. He just said he wasn't doing this just to contradict Abu Bakr. He was doing this, doing this because he thought Oyena ibn Hassan deserved the position of governor more than Al-Akra ibn Habis did. And so they started arguing and it started getting louder and it got so loud that they were actually speaking over the prophet who, who uh, characteristically did not like to raise his voice. He did not like to speak very loud. And this kind of frustrated him also that two of his closest companions were arguing with each other so loud that he couldn't even get a word in and he couldn't in order for him to do so he would have had to raise his voice which was not in his character um, which was really not part of his character so before we get on with the story just want to 
a quick side note that this is not the first not first time that we've come across these two men, Al-Akra and Oyena. Even though we haven't mentioned them specifically by name, they were involved in an earlier episode. If you remember from Sira episode number 36, when we were discussing the conversion of Banu Hawazin after the battle of, uh, of the battle of Hunayn, after Banu Hawazin accepted Islam, they were defeated by the Muslims after the Battle of Hunayn. Once again, this is episode number 36. They asked their prophet to return their captured families. They were essentially in the same position that Banu Tamim was now. The prophet, when they made this request after Banu Hawazin had capitulated and accepted Islam, the prophet agreed to, to return those captives that were held by him and by his um, clans, his family members. So that was basically Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib. Those Muslims who were part of those two clans, the Prophet agreed to return those and the ones that he per, he personally held. He agreed to return them. The, Muhaj, the Muhajirun and the Ansars, when they saw the Prophet did this, they also agreed. And so, so they essentially said, the uh, Muhajirun and the Ansars, that is the Muhajirun were those who came to Medina along with the Prophet. They had converted in Mecca. They came to Medina along with the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the Ansars were those um, inhabitants of Medina who accepted Islam and invited the Prophet to their city. These two groups were the first two groups to accept Islam. They were the closest. When they saw what the Prophet did, they followed suit and said, the Prophet uh, Messenger of Allah, whatever we have, belongs to you. Essentially saying that they turn over their captives to the Prophet, meaning that their captives would be free also because the Prophet had had given up and had promised to to free all the captives that belonged to him. So the Muhajirun and the Ansar were basically following suit. However, we mentioned that there were some companions who did not want to give up theirs. And these were not members of either the Muhajirun or the Ansar. In fact, the two two of the men who refused to do, to give them up initially were Al Akra and Oyena. Al Akra he was the leader of the Muslims of Banu Tamim. So, as we mentioned, there were some people. Al Akra was among those members of Banu Tamim who had accepted Islam even before the conquest of Mecca and joined the Prophet. This group, Al Akra, was the leader of them. He refused him and his people. They refused to give up their captives. Oyena as well, he was in a similar situation. He was the leader of the Muslims of a tribe called Banu Faraza. Him and his, they also refused to give up their captives. And so eventually the prophet, he agreed to give both of these groups and all the other groups who refused to give up their captives to Banu, of, uh, who were members of Banu Hawazin. The prophet agreed to give all of them six camels for each captive that they freed. And that's that was how he was able to return the members of Banu Hawazin. So back to our main story. These two events that we discussed, first, the delegation calling out the prophet's name while he was inside of his home, calling out the prophet and demanding he come out and treat with them, as well as the argument between Abu Bakr and Omar. These two events, these two incidents led to the revelation of some of the first, uh, some of the several f- first several verses of Surah Al-Hujurat, which is chapter forty-nine, and we'll go over the English right now. Chapter forty-nine, verses one through three, 
they, even though they're out of um, chronological order, they actually relate to the argument between Abu Bakr and Omar. Uh, the, tra- the English translation is, O you who have believed, do not put yourselves before Allah and his messenger, but fear Allah. Indeed, Allah is hearing and knowing. O you who have believed, do not raise your voices above the voice of the prophet, or be loud to him in speech like the loudness of some of you to others lest your deeds become worthless while you perceive not. Indeed, those who lower their voices before the messenger of Allah, they are the ones whose hearts Allah has tested for righteousness, for them is forgiveness and a great reward. Verses 4 and 5 of Surah Al-Hujrat, they relate to Banu Tamim calling out the Prophet while he was in his home. Indeed, those who call you, O Muhammad, from behind the chambers, most of them do not use reason. And if they had been patient until you came out to them, it would have been better for them. But Allah is forgiving and merciful. So the Prophet now, he is out there uh, discussing with Banu Tamim. And Banu Tamim, for some reason, they decided to challenge the Muslims to a poetry competition. This was not necessarily, I don't know the, honestly, I really don't know the intent behind Banu Tamim and challenging for this poetry competition. I don't know if it was just a matter of them trying to save some save some face while they were um, submitting to the prophet. I don't know if they were, there was some sort of agreement that if they won this competition, the prophet would give them this or have make some sort of a conciliation to them. And I really don't know what the purpose was. My best guess is that it was probably in a way for them to sh- to save some face, try to show that while they were defeated, they weren't really beaten. Maybe that's what it was about. Allah knows best. Anyway, the prophet agreed and he let the um, Banu Tamim choose their best poet and let them go first. The poet came out and he recited a bunch of both poetry. Not, I'm not going to go th- through it all right now. It doesn't It doesn't really have the same impact in English and I'm not really want to go hunting down the Arabic and go through it all with you. Uh, but the um, anyway, the Banu Tamim, they let their poet go. And so the prophet, he called one of his uh, poets from one of the Muslim poets, a man named Thabit ibn Qais. He called for Thabit to come and recite poetry on the Muslim's behalf. Now, Thabit ibn Qais, he happened to hear about the revealed verses and Honestly, I'm not 100% sure of when of when this happened chronologically, about when the verses came down, if they came down at the same moment that all these things were happening, where Abu Bakr was arguing that people were calling out for the prophet. I'm not really sure exactly when it happened. Just by the pace of the story, I'm somewhat inclined to think it all happened within a short space of time. But in any case, when Thabin heard about the revelation and about those uh, verses that um, rebuked or I won't say condemned, but perhaps reprimanded is a better word, reprimanded those companions who raised their voices above the voice of the prophet. When Thabit heard those verses, he went into a deep depression because he knew that he had in the past at some point raised his voice before the prophet. And he thought that he was among those who were doomed and who were who had earned Allah's disfavor. When the prophet heard about this, he assured Thabit ibn Qais that actually he was quite safe from harm and that he was actually one of those who were guaranteed paradise. 
This brings us to one of the many side notes I'm going to take throughout this episode. Now, in this um, story, Fabit ibn Qais, he is right here in this story. And I believe there's also a hadith, but I haven't tracked down the hadith, but it's definitely in the um, history of Atabari. In this story, Thabit ibn Qais is guaranteed paradise by Prophet Muhammad Despite this, Thabit ibn Qais is not considered one of the Ashr Mubashir or the ten who were promised paradise. So this proves that even though we have, you can find a bunch of lists of people, uh, you know, listing down or naming those ten who were promised paradise. And they're generally consistent all the way through. There's some disagreement over the over the tenth person, but they're essentially um, consistent uh, all the way through. Whenever you find these different lists, there's no doubt about the first four for sure, and there's not much doubt about the other five either. Be that as it may, um, Thabit is never on that list. Yet here he is, obviously granted paradise, or I will say promised paradise. This goes to show that the ten people who we actually consider as part or who are always on this list of the 10 who are promised paradise it's not limited these are not the only ones who are promised paradise there are dozens of hadith many many stories of the prophet promising certain companions paradise or relating stories that essentially promise that per, that companion paradise there's a hadith i'm going to really mess it up because i don't have it in front of me right now there's a hadith where the prophet essentially said that he heard Bilal's footsteps in paradise before another companion. I'm trying, I can't remember who, the, who he was comparing it to. But that's basically saying that Bilal was promised paradise. And this happened, there's several other stories like this, where you're, the prophet is confirming that a certain companion is going to get paradise, and they're not on this list. There are some stories where we don't even know who the companion was that the prophet um, promised paradise. I'm not saying that the prophet was randomly throwing out guarantees of paradise to everyone who crossed him, but that that's not what I'm saying at all. My point is just that the classical list we have of the 10 promised paradise is not limited to that. There are many others who were promised paradise. And in fact, um, for this particular Sahaba, Thabit ibn Qais, most stories or most um, history seem to say that he was actually killed during the Battle of Yamama, fighting against Musaylam al-Kadhab, Musaylam the liar, the false prophet. There are other stories, however, who say that he lived beyond that battle and that he was actually the um, he actually established the first masjid in China. Allah knows best, but it seems to be that he actually died during the Battle of Yamama, in which case he died of a shaheed, and he actually did attain paradise. And Allah knows best. Back to our story. With his spirits lifted then, Thabit ibn Qais, he went on ahead and participated in the poetry battle on behalf of the Prophet. The Prophet also asked another companion named Hassan ibn Thabit to participate. Um, I don't believe Hassan ibn Thabit and Thabit ibn Qais were related. However, they were from the same clan. In any case, Hassan ibn Thabit was also mentioned earlier. Hassan ibn Thabit was one of the greatest Muslim poets. We discussed him in episode number 26. If you don't remember, that was during the Battle of the Trench. Hassan ibn Thabit, he was with the women and children 
inside one of the fortified buildings or one of, one of the Muslim fortresses within Medina during the battle. We mentioned how during this battle, a female companion named Sophia bint Abdul Muttalib, she saw a spy lurking around outside the Muslim fortress and she told Hassan ibn Thabit to go and kill that spy. Hassan ibn Thabit, however, he was he refused to do this. That's not me. I'm not the one to do that. I'm not the right person for that. After all, <laughs> while the Battle of the Trench is going on, he's inside the fortress with the women and children. Kind of tells you that he just wasn't the warrior type. Anyway, so Safiya uh, bent Abdul Muttalib, seeing that Hassan ibn Thabit wasn't going to do anything, she went outside and killed the spy herself. Another time you, you may have heard of Hassan ibn Thabit is that he was also involved in the, the slander against Aisha in the Ifq. And he received lashes, 80 lashes according to the story. He received lashes for spreading poetry about that scandal. So both him and um, Hassan ibn Thabit and Thabit ibn Qais, they're both from uh, Banu Khazraj, which were one of the uh, two main tribes within Medina. They're both from the same clan within the tribe of Banu Khazraj. Anyway, this, of course, is several years after the scandal and the lie against Aisha. And so Hassan ibn Thabit, he has been he had already been punished for being involved in that scandal. And so now he is well within the graces of the Muslims and he helps and participates in the poetry in this poetry battle, so to speak, on behalf of the Muslims and um, at the request of Prophet Muhammad and the Muslim poets won, and after the Muslim poets won, Banu Tamim accepted Islam, and the Prophet wasallam, he gave Banu Tamim, the delegation of Banu Tamim gifts, and he released their families back to them. And so that ends the story of the conversion or the delegation of Banu Tamim. Next, we're going to go on into the conversion of Himyar. So, uh, several Himyar kings from southern Arabia, they had sent a letter to the prophet announcing their conversion. And so, this letter and the messenger who brought the letter, they were actually waiting for the prophet in Medina when he returned from Tabuk. And he returned from Tabuk in the month of Ramadan, 9 8 and Ramadan is the ninth month of the year. So, just so you understand who the Himyar were. Himyar is not a single tribe, actually. Himyar is one of two broad groups of Arabs. And I'm going to give you a very brief overview of these two broad groups. The Himyar or the Himyarites, the Himyarites, they are the original Arab people originating from southern Arabia, particularly from Yemen. These are the original Arabs, the original, original Arabs. Their counterpart are the Mudaharites, and these are Arabized Arabs. These are people who came from outside the Arabian Peninsula, settled in Arabia, and eventually became Arabized by mixing with the Himyarites. And these are essentially those Arabs who descended from Prophet Ismail, alayhimus salam. Alayhi, alayhi salam, my Arabic grammar correct. 
These are the Arabs who were descended from Prophet Ismail. And as you know, Prophet Ismail, he, his two parents were Prophet Ibrahim salam, and Hajar. Hajar was Egyptian. He was Coptic. Ibrahim, we don't really, really know he, who he was. In my opinion, I believe he was Persian. I believe he was from Babylon. So he was whatever Persian group ruled Babylon at that time or was dominated Babylon, Babylon at that time which would make uh, Prophet Ismail a combination of Egyptian and Persian. So, however, of course, Prophet Ismail, he would have married a local woman from that region. When You know the stories about Ibrahim visiting his son Ismail um, after the construction of the Kaaba and meeting his wife and rejecting the first one, accepting the second one. You know these stories. If not, I mean, I have it somewhere. I got to think about where it is, but you, this is a very popular story. In any case, Prophet Ismail would have married a local woman from local Arab Arabs. And so this is where the line, the other large, broad group, and I do mean broad, broad group of Arabs come from. Now, believe me, it is much more complex than that. You cannot necessarily look at Arabs today and try to say you're Hemiorite, you're Murharite. It's much more complex than that. And even truthfully, honestly, I don't even really understand how it all breaks down because I have not really involved myself in an ethnographic study of the Arab world. And I, I, I don't want to really presume to know too much about this. I just want to help you understand this phrase, himyard, so you understand that it's not necessarily a single tribe. It is a broad group of Arabs from Southern Arabia. And in fact, however, many of the wars between Arabs, both before and after Islam, they were largely based around these broad groups. And whenever we return, inshallah, we will, we will eventually return to the, um, to the wars between Abdullah ibn Zubair and the Umayyad dynasty. When we, ret- when we return to that, inshallah, we'll get a little bit deeper into these different tribal alliances. And I hope, inshallah, that some of that will become clear. So anyway, the Himyar, these Himyar kings, we can might as well just say Yemeni kings. These Yemeni kings, they sent a message to the prophet that was waiting for him when he returned from uh, the battle of Tabuk, saying that they had accepted Islam. So the prophet, he sent a message back to them, giving them lots of advice. He sent this message back with a companion named Mu'adh ibn Jabal and also several other companions. He sent these companions um, with this, with his message, as well as instructions to basically teach these Yemeni kings about Islam and also to collect the zakat. So he advised, in the message that he sent to the Yemeni kings, he advised them to pray and to pay the zakat and to return a fifth of their spoils of war back to Medina. So if these kings waged wars on their own, uh, and he, the fifth of that had to be returned back to the government in Medina. The Prophet also laid out um, many rules on how the zakat, or how much zakat was to be sent back to Medina. And is, there's lots of details in them. And a lot of that has actually developed into the zakat rules we have today. Basically, if you have this many cows, you get this much back, you get this much in zakat, you have this many camels, this much goes in zakat, so forth and so on division of crops and and all sorts of things. A lot of a lot of the fic that we have today is based off of this letter or this message that the Prophet saw these instructions that he sent down to these Yemeni kings. 
He also uh, gave these Yemeni kings advice on how to treat their uh, Jewish and Christian subjects. He said basically that if they accepted, accepted Islam, then they have all the same rights and duties as all the other believers and Muslims within their kingdoms. However, he encouraged them not to, he encouraged the Yemeni kings not to bother, not to harass, and not to try to influence those Jews and Christians who chose to keep their faith. He told them, he told basically, he told the Yemeni kings, don't harass them, don't try to convert them, leave them alone. If they want to keep their own faith, let them be, but they have to pay a tax in lieu of the zakat. The zakat is a religious monetary duty, and since you can't force religious laws on people who are not Muslim, instead they had to pay a tax, which we now know of as the jizya. And the prophet even gave him a rule for that, how much to say. He said, and the actual amount of zakat, or I would say the the amount of jizya was actually less than the zakat that was due by on the Muslims. Uh, the the jizya that was due was just one dinar for every adult, male and female, free and slave. Every um, Jewish or Christian, male or female adult, free or slave adult, had to pay one dinar as jizya back to the capital. And if they couldn't afford that, or if they didn't have that, they could give the same equivalent amount in cloth. The prophet also told, in explaining the zakat, he told the Yemeni kings that this zakat was not for him personally, and it was not for him nor his family, because he told them that charity was forbidden for the prophet and for his family. And he reminded them that, in fact, this charity was for those who are in need, for the needing. And then he encouraged the Yemeni kings to treat their people well and not to oppress them. And then the prophet began to give advice to Mu'ad ibn Jabal, Mu'ad ibn Jabal, um, separately. He started to talk to Mu'ad and give him advice separately. And there's a famous hadith about this. And the prophet asked, um, before Mu'ad left for Yemen, the prophet asked him several questions. He advised uh, Mu'ad that many of the Yemenis were people of the book. And once again, we're going to go into one of our many diversions from the main story. Yemen, if you are familiar with your geography, is right across the Red Sea from the Horn of Africa, which is, at this point in time in the story, was part of Abyssinia, which was mostly Christian. And a particular brand of Christian known as, I believe they're Coptic Christian, I believe they're Coptic Christian, just like those in Egypt. Any case, once again, we're going a little diversion here. Before the prophet's birth, this region of Yemen, this region of Arabia, South Southern Arabia, this region that we now know of as Yemen, this region had been conquered by an Abyssinian general. This was an, a Christian Abyssinian general, and the, that was because the reason why this Abyssinian general conquered this region was because the Christians of this area had been persecuted by their Jewish king. And this all relates to the background of the story that we know of as the boy and the king, which is a long hadith about that. And this is all related to Suratul Buruj. I've discussed this before. I can't really remember where, but I know I've discussed it at some point in time with you guys before. But this is all related to Suratul Buruj and the the um, 
what's called the Asbabun Nuzul, or the reasons for revelation of Surah Al-Buruj, and it discusses it in the beginning. And this is all related back to the hadith that discusses the story of the boy and the king. It's a very famous hadith. It is authentic. It's, I'm pretty sure it's mentioned in Bukhari and the Muslim. I'm almost certain at least Bukhari. But in any case, the um, I'm not going to go into the story of the boy and the king. That's a long story. The people of most of the people of South Yemen were Christian. However, they are they were oppressed. Many of them were oppressed and persecuted by their Jewish king. But keep in mind that Jews, a lot of Jews at this time, looked on Christians as a um, even though it had kind of calmed down by then because Christianity had been essentially formalized and was now a separate thing from Judaism. But before this, many Jews had thought had looked on Christianity as a um, heretical Jewish sect, so to speak. Not all. And by this time, of course, once again, a lot of this had had died down by now because uh, Christianity had definitely um, differentiated itself so much from Judaism that it was no longer considered really a sect of Judaism. In any case, so according to the story, this Jewish king, he persecuted his people, his uh, his Christian subjects. In response, Abyssinia sent two generals to punish him and conquer that land. They did so, took over that land. One of these generals, he built a, a huge temple. His name was Abraha. He built a huge temple to try to attract the Arabs to that temple, and he could earn the money off of that, off of their, their pilgrimage to attract them away from going to the Kaaba in Mecca. That temple wasn't so attractive to the Arabs, and so Abraha, this general, he decided to uh, load up an army, include some elephants with it, and go knock down the Kaaba in Mecca. And uh, from that, of course, is the background to Surah Tulfil. Essentially, I'm just giving you some background. Just try, I'm really trying to show you how, and I, I know I'm going off track again, I'm trying to show you how the Sirah, which is the story and the life of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the hadith, which are the quotes of the Prophet, as well as um, some of his companions and stories that surround the Prophet and some of his companions, as well as the Quran. I'm trying to show you how all these things work together. And I know I'm going into a lot of tangents here, but I find these things interesting to see how these three, these three large parts of Islamic knowledge, of Islamic education, all work together and help give us hopefully a broader understanding of our, our religion and about the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Any case, continuing on with the Prophet's advice to Muadh ibn Jabal, he advised Muadh to invite the people to Islam, those who had not yet accepted Islam. He advised him to invite them to Islam, and if they did accept Islam, he told Muadh to instruct the people who accepted Islam to pray five times a day. And if they accepted that, then he was to tell them to pay the zakat and collect the zakat from the rich and give to their poor. And if they agreed to that, then he told he also instructed Maad not to take the best of the people's wealth. In other words, when he's taking these zakat, don't take the best camel that they got. If you're going to take one of the camels, take one of the you know second or third grade camels. Don't take the very best and finest of their camels, because that, of course, would turn people's hearts against against the government. He also, this is the most important part of this hadith, he advised Mu'adh to beware in giving this advice to Mu'adh. He was telling him essentially don't oppress the people. Take it easy with them. And he, he was essentially saying beware of the supplication of the oppressed because there's no barrier between them and Allah. And he also told Mu'adh that uh, as 
before Moab was leaving, he told Moab that they would probably would probably not see each other again. This was an indication that the Prophet knew that his death was coming soon. And upon hearing this, Moab began to cry. And so that completes the story of the conversion of the Himyars or the Yemenis. Now we have one more delegation story, and this is the story of Banu Sa'ad ibn Bakr. They sent a man, Banu Sa'ad ibn Bakr, I'm really not sure where this uh, this small tribe was located. In any case, they sent a man named Dimam ibn Tha'alabad to meet with the prophet. They sent a delegation of one man. They sent this one man named Dimam ibn Tha'alabad to meet with the prophet and try to come to some sort of terms with him. There's no indication they were at war. The, but the influence and the strength of the Muslims was at, was so strong at this point. Just most of the delegations, most of these tribes and small clans, they knew it was just best to just go ahead and join the Muslims at this point in time. So Dimam, he is described as a large and hairy man with two large braids in front of his hair, in front of his head. And he was probably a Bedouin, and or at least the people may have been a Bedouin, or maybe a maybe a a Bedouin tribe that had just recently settled down, maybe just a few generations into one group or into a sort of a, a stable city or village. In any case, Dimam, he was very brusque, very um, assertive, very direct in his speech with the prophet and in his manner. So Dimam, he went to the prophet's masjid where the prophet was sitting with his companions, and he began to ask the prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a series of questions. And he prefaced his questions by saying that he was going to be rude and direct, and so that he, the prophet shouldn't take it personally because this is just the way he was. So the prophet agreed and said, go ahead and say what you got to say. So Dimam, he asked the prophet, he asked Muhammad if he was really truly a prophet, and the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, yes, he was. Then he asked if the prophet was commanded to teach the people to worship Allah and abandon the idols. Prophet once again said that that was the truth. Then he asked um, the prophet if it was true that they had to pray the five daily prayers. Prophet once again confirmed that that was true. And then uh, Dimam went on to ask about the other pillars of Islam, including the fasting and the zakat and the hajj. And the prophet affirmed that all these things were true. So after all this, uh, Dimam, he then took his shahada right then and there. And then he said he was going to follow these ab- obligations that the Prophet had laid out. He said that he was going to avoid what the Prophet told him to avoid. He was going to accept what the Prophet told him to accept. He also said that he was not going to do anything extra. He wasn't going to do anything less than these five pillars. <laughs> because I'm, you, you said this is what we have to do, and I don't have to do anything more. And I don't have to do anything less. I'm going to go ahead and do exactly that, and nothing more, and nothing less. And so... After Dimam left, the Prophet ﷺ said that if he is sincere, then he will enter paradise. And this is one of the many hadith that established the foundation for the five pillars of Islam. And this is a fairly popular hadith. I stressed it out a little bit, but it's essentially a fairly popular hadith. Dimam, he went on back to his people, Banu Sa'ad ibn Bakr. He went back to his people and he immediately announced that their two idols, Allah and Al-Uzza, were evil. And when he said this, his people were shocked. They had sent him to, um, to try to work out some sort of uh, negotiations with the prophet. They didn't expect him to come back and start calling out their idols. And they were shocked. They told him to be careful because calling out their idols might bring some calamity on them. 
And so Imam um, Dimam, he refused to stop and he began to continuously rebuke the idols. And then he went on to teach his people about what he had learned while in Medina. And by the end of the, the day, his entire village, his entire tribe had accepted Islam. And so that ends our discussion on the delegations in this time of the year, in this time, in this year, 9-A-H. There are many other delegations to come in the following in the following years, and we may touch on some of those as we go forward. But let's continue now. So the final month of the year is, of course, Dhul Hijjah, the month of Hajj, and Abu Bakr was sent by the Prophet ﷺ to lead the Hajj that year. The Prophet, he was now the leader of a large state. He has all these delegations coming through. He really couldn't leave and he had to stay in Medina. And just so you understand, up to this time, the Prophet had never actually made Hajj himself. He had made Umrah before. We discussed um, we discussed at least one of his Umrah, well, two Umrah attempts, one where he made it, at least three Umrah attempts. But anyway, the Prophet had definitely made Umrah before, which is the minor pilgrimage, but he had never made the major pilgrimage, the the Hajj itself. So he sent Abu Bakr to lead the Hajj this year, and 300 people accompanied Abu Bakr from Medina to Mecca. However, soon after Abu Bakr left Medina, the first 40 verses of Surah Tauba were revealed. I'm sorry, soon after Abu Bakr left Medina, going to make the Hajj. The first 40 verses of Surah Tauba were revealed to Prophet Muhammad. And these verses included some of the themes that, about earlier events that had happened before, as well as including some rules about the Hajj and some rules about giving charity. Surah Tauba is also known as Surah Tul-Bara'a, which means disassociation. It basically means that Allah and His Messenger were disassociating themselves from any of the idol worship going on still in Arabia and also from the idol worshippers still in Arabia. So the Prophet, after he received these, this revelation, he sent Ali ibn Abi Talib to catch up with Abu Bakr. And Ali caught up with Abu Bakr at a village just, at a village just outside of Medina. And Abu Bakr was a bit concerned that Ali had been sent to replace him. But and Ali confirmed that he was only sent to convey the message of the revelation because the Prophet had said that only someone from his family could deliver the news of the revelation. In any case, this, I encourage you to go read the first 40 verses of Surah Al-Bara'a or Surah Al-Tawbah. They, um, they're kind of rough. <laughs> Lots of playing games in those first 40 verses there. They're a little rough there, but you got to take them in context. I hope that this kind of gives you some context. These verses were revealed uh, barely a year after the conquest of Mecca. So the prophet is still fighting against lots of pagans in the area. The Muslim empire is growing, starting to gain some strength. Try to understand the context. And I'll try to explain some of that context right now. In these verses, the pagans are put on notice and they are told there are still some pagans basically living in Mecca after his conquest. We, we mentioned that when we discussed the conquest of Mecca, the Prophet at that point of time, he didn't force people to convert and say, you got to convert or, or leave or convert or die or anything like that. He didn't, come, he didn't force anyone to convert. However, a little bit over a year had now passed since the conquest of Mecca. Mecca is a holy city. 
is holy city for Muslims, and it had to be purified of paganism. These, this revelation, basically, these first forty verses of Surah Tauba, they were prohibiting, prohibiting the pagans from accessing, accessing or having access to the Kaaba, or making Hajj after this year. This would basically be their last time making Hajj. So, the pagans were now being advised that this is it. You won't have access to the Kaaba after this one. And they were given a time limit of four months to make, to make a decision, either accept Islam or go somewhere else. Now, I want you to understand. Now, I understand that you might think that this was maybe unfair on the Muslims' part because the uh, much of the reason for for fighting the Quraysh was that the Quraysh had, well, there are many reasons for fighting the Quraysh before that, but we also discussed how wrong it was for the Quraysh to prevent the Muslims from making Umrah, during the, which led to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And I, I do understand that obvious contradiction. However, let's keep a few things in mind here. First of all, this four-month limit it was there were some exceptions. So if anyone within this, any of the pagans had agreements or treaties with the Muslims, then they were permitted to, they were permitted a grace period up to the time of the end of their treaty or agreement, whatever they had. Also bear in mind that at this time, the prophet had been preaching Islam for over 20 years now. And so you can't really say that the pagans who were there who are still in Mecca, you can't really say that they were ignorant of the concept of Islam, that they were ignorant of what Islam meant. They knew what Islam was. If they were still worshiping idols, it was just that they were attached to their old beliefs. So Ali, he made the announcement on the day of, of Yawm al-Arafah, the day of al-Arafah. He announced that the pagans would be banned from the Kaaba after that year. He also announced that no one was allowed to run naked around the Kaaba any longer, which was a pagan tradition. Evidently, judging from this, the Prophet had purified the Kaaba of the um, idols after he conquered Mecca, but he had not banned the pagans or anyone else from accessing the Kaaba. So it is most likely that even though most of Mecca and most of the Quraysh had accepted Islam, there were probably some, still some holdouts, and they were probably still running around the Kaaba stark naked. And most likely this information filtered back to the Prophet, and he wanted to put an end to that immediately. And Ali also announced that the agreements with the Muslims, any of these pagans who had agreements with the Muslims, they were safe and they could remain wherever they were until the expiration of those agreements. Most of the remaining pagans at this time, they went on ahead and accepted Islam because they realized that they really didn't have much choice in the matter. As we mentioned, the vast majority of the Quraysh had accepted Islam. They were surrounded in a sea of Muslims now, pretty much all the area around Mecca and Medina, much of Western Arabia and now even Southern Arabia with Yemen coming into Islam. Most of these regions had accepted Islam. And so the few remaining pagan holdouts, and I don't really think there were that many, they pretty much went on ahead and accepted Islam. They really didn't have much choice. Let's bear in mind also, I, like I said, I understand the obvious contradiction that some people might bring up, but bear in mind that these pagans within Mecca, these were mostly 
former enemies of the Muslims. These were defeated enemies of Prophet Muhammad and the Muslims. These are people who had betrayed him. They had broken all sorts of agreements with him. They had forged alliances against the Muslims, with the Byzantines, with the Quraysh, with all sorts of tribes against the Muslims. They had killed and murdered and assaulted and raped and did all sorts of bad things to various Muslims over the years. We discussed many of the things that so many of the pagan tribes had done against the Muslims over so many years. Despite all of this thing, these things that they had done to the Muslims, the prophet, after conquering Mecca, he didn't kill them. He didn't force them out. He didn't force them to convert. He had given them a full year of free reign, more than a year, by the way, a full year and change of free reign in Mecca. People who were defeated enemies. He didn't put them in prison. Any other country, even the United States of America, when they conquer a land and or they defeat an army, if people were active combatants or had done things against the uh, conquering army, they're going in a hole at best. They're going in some hole on Guantanamo Bay or some other part of the world if they're not executed or killed. So despite all this, the prophet gave them a year to think things over. Now it's time to make a decision. And from a political standpoint, you can just take religion out of it. I'm sorry, this was a necessity. The prophet could not let this essentially a fifth column a subversive group remain within the Muslim domain and not by taking Shahada, they are essentially even whatever they believe in their heart may be different, but by taking the Shahada, they are essentially pledging their belief in Islam and their support of the prophet. So even from a political standpoint, I can see that this was a necessity for the prophet to take this step. And in any case, as Muslims, it wasn't a prophet acting on his own. This was a commandment from Allah. So he had no choice in the matter one way or the other. So that pretty much will almost wrap things up. There were a few notable deaths in this year, 9-8-H, as we wrap things up for this year. One of them, or the most notable death, was that of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, who was the chief hypocrite in Medina. He got sick during the month of Shawwal. Uh, which is the month, I believe, after Ramadan. He got sick during the month of Shawwal and died in Dhul Qa'ada, which is the 11th month of the year. The Prophet ﷺ, he did pray for Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, even though Omar ibn Khattab was against this and he uh, protested this. After the Prophet had prayed for Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn, ibn Salul, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses prohibiting this and prohibiting the Prophet from praying for open hypocrites ever again. And this was all discussed in the episode about the ifk, the scandal or the um, slander against Aisha radiallahu anha. Another death this year was An-Najashi. He was the king of Abyssinia. He died in Rajab, the month of Rajab, 9-A-H. Rajab is the seventh month of the year. And finally, Umm Kulthum, who was the prophet's daughter and the wife of Uthman ibn Affan. She also died. She died in the month of Sha'ban, which is the eighth month of the year, the month before Ramadan. So 
chances are she might have died but the prophet was on his journey to, to the battle of tabuk and allah knows best so that will wrap it up for 9ah the events of 9ah are complete we have covered just about everything that i am aware of and allah knows we sure we missed a whole lot of stuff but i think we're pretty much caught up on this year next episode inshallah we will begin the 10th year of the hijrah we will go into more discussion on the delegates and coming into medina and the continued expansion of the muslim empire or the muslim domain if you don't like the word empire and we might also discuss the prophet's first interaction with muslim al-kadhab or muslim the liar that does happen in the year 10 AH. We'll, go, we'll get into that, inshallah, in the next episode. But until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhum.